Okay, good morning. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so I am Emily Layton, Executive Director of Midtown Creek Vol. So welcome. Really glad you're here. Um, special welcome to our visitors. Um, if you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're here for the second time, you are also welcome. Um, or the 100th or 200th time. So really glad y'all are here. Um, there is a QR code on the back of the chair. So give that a scan. That's a good opportunity to learn more about what we have going on here outside of just Sunday morning worship. So for example, um, we have this Sunday lunch picnic after church this very day. I know. So if you're like, I forgot breakfast. Oh no, how am I going to survive? Like just hang on, you can do it. Um, and it is going to be at the pavilion behind the building. So if you're adventurous and you love mountains, you can go out that door or you can go out that door after service and go down a lovely pathway and make your way this way. Um, but first, please retrieve your children from Kidtown before you like beeline for the chili. So please do that. So Polly and our volunteers are happy with me. Um, okay, so Youth Ball Fellowship night is tonight. Um, it is very fun if you have not participated in this before. And if you're an adult who really wants to wear a costume, this is your moment. Um, so do it. Just come. Um, it's at our Granny White location. So if you come here in costume, you will feel really weird. So don't do that. Go to our Granny White location of Midtown, and that is 4 to 7 tonight. Um, last but certainly not least, we have two fun things this Friday. So we have Women's Bonfire, um, and we have the Friday night guys hangout thing that y'all do that I'm not invited to. So I don't know really what y'all do, but I bet it's super fun. Um, so both of those things are happening this Friday. So get a babysitter and y'all go and have a great time. So don't forget, we are eating after service at the pavilion. Pick up your kids. See you there. My name is Jeremy, I'm the pastor here, and uh, we have been in a series in Revelation for the last number of weeks, um, and the best thing about Revelation, before you even say anything, is just to let the text speak. So that's what we're going to do. Revelation 17 is here. Cynthia Sandall, maybe, is here to read. Yes! Everybody welcome Cynthia Sandall. Revelation 17. Revelation 17, then one of the seven, oh, got this right for the picture. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup of full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? 
I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has domination over the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. How's everybody feel about that? Okay. Now that the text has spoken, uh, let's pray and ask for the Spirit to speak through it. Jesus, we pray uh, that you would enliven us by your Spirit's power to see what you want us to see, that you would speak uh, into our hearts now uh, exactly the words that you want us to hear, that we would not be distracted uh, by these ancient images, that we would be instead led by them to you, the heart of the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I found a story probably two to three years ago in um, when I was flipping through my newsfeed, and it was entitled, I Really Feel Most Comfortable in Prison. A hedge fund ex-con finds it hard coming home to Greenwich. And it was a story out of Vanity Fair a number of years ago, happened between 2010 and 2016. And it was a story of this man named Joseph Scowron, I'm probably saying his name wrong, the third, otherwise known as Chip. I'm going to call him Chip because that other name's hard to say. Uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, in the early 1900s became this place where all the industrial tycoons, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Carnegies, and those descended from them built these massive mansions and these palatial estates on large, beautiful acreage. And the town then boomed again in the early 2000s, mainly filled, almost the only group of people that had the funds to be able to live in this place are those that manage these things called 
hedge funds, that I don't have enough money to know what these things exactly are, but they're an investment pool of some kind that can be, from what I hear, highly lucrative. One of the new money people who had just moved into this community was a doctor who had then invested in said hedge funds, and his name was Chip. Uh, Five years earlier, he had hit it big, and now in early 2006, he had finally made it. He bought a three-acre plot on Doubling Road there uh, very near the town city center for 4.1 mil. It was 10,000 square feet, New England-style home, seven beds, four fireplaces, a pool, a wine cellar, a seven-car garage, and a view of the New England Sound. I'm sorry, Long Island Sound. Uh, He was a member of the local country club. He was invited to all of the greatest charity galas, and uh, he owned one of the most expensive cars in Greenwich at that time, an Alfa Romeo Spider, 8C Spider. Again, also, don't know. Uh, But he would be later quoted as he's being interviewed for Vanity Fair as one who inside was empty and emotionally exhausted. He was quoted to say, I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to be somebody that was important. I wanted to accomplish, to succeed, and to be satisfied. But it was all illusory, meaning it was all an illusion. It didn't actually mean anything to me inside. And then he got arrested. And he would go on later to say that it was the best thing that ever happened to him. More on Chip later. But we live in a glory-soaked world, but with nobody to thank for it. We're born into this world with this internal drive to have beautiful homes, lots of money, the coolest shoes, the perfect family, thereby believing that if we get those things, then those will be abundant life for me. We don't have to search very hard to know what it is that we think will make us happy. But anyone who has ever achieved any smidge or any taste of this said good life knows that it's not always what it's cracked up to be. Like, has anybody in the room ever gotten exactly what they wanted, maybe just in a small way? Maybe it was a birthday present. Maybe it was a new car. Maybe it was a bonus at work. Maybe it was an attaboy, whatever it was. And when you got that thing, you thought, now is the time when I will enter into my joy. And instead, what you found is you woke up the next morning and you felt just as empty as the day before. Anybody ever been there? Because we are made in the image of a God who loves to be one who loves God and glorifies him and enjoys him forever. That's that's in our DNA. And through him, then we get to enjoy all the amazing stuff he made. The reason why we're so enamored with all of the stuff he made is because he's amazing. But we would choose, we would rather choose for him to step aside and just enjoy all his amazing stuff instead. But when you do that, the picture gets hues darker. That's where we find ourselves in Revelation 17. That's the picture, the picture here that we read in all of the intense language and imagery that's happening here is a picture of the world sans God. Trusting in instead power and pleasure 
are the two things that this passage calls to mind today to be the thing that will ultimately satisfy our souls. And this is meant for every one of us, much like Chip and his arrest that we'll get into later, to be this wake-up call. Revelation, as an entire book, is a wake-up call. Is a wake-up call to see that things are not as they seem. That things are not even as we think we believe them to be. Much of what we actually chase, thinking that it's going to bring us life, is actually a pile of dead bones. And much of what we ultimately see as something that might bring us death and feels less glorious and more like suffering might actually be some of the very things that would bring us the most life. That is the world that we live in. That is the tension that we live in. And that's where Revelation 17 brings us today. So we're going to do our best to work our way through this passage uh, with these two points before us today. First, the prison of worldliness. The first thing that this passage describes is the prison that when we just follow our hearts into whatever we want, another word for that is worldliness. The prison of worldliness. But second, buried in the middle of the text is this amazing statement about the freedom of godliness in Jesus. The prison of worldliness, the freedom of godliness. So this is a, another one of the judgment passages similar to the one that we read last week. Verse 1 uh, brings us right into a thing that has already begun, a theme that has already begun in chapter 16. Verse 1 says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Beginning in verse 16 is this image of all of these seven bowls of wrath the wrath of God that are being poured out on the earth. And we now find ourselves, all of those bowls now having been poured out, there is now this moment of, and now what? Now, how is this whole thing going to be made right? How are we going to conquer, which has been the question through Revelation the whole time. When we see the world that we live in, when we see our own selves and these, these uh, people that we are, we see all of the gaps between who we wish we are and what we wish this world was and who we actually are and what this world actually is. And so Revelation 17 pulls back the curtain on reality in a theme that we started last week because there are three enemies of the church. There are three enemies of Jesus that the book of Revelation describes. The first one of those we found in Revelation 12, uh, that was last week, that was the dragon. The image is this dragon who is Satan and the other uh, angels of Satan that followed him in his fallenness and tried to take over the throne of God and now continue to try to woo us away from our creator. That was last week. This week, we're piling the other two enemies of God. Literally, the passage piles the other two enemies of Jesus on top of each other. The other two enemies are the beast Actually, it's two beasts. We meet one of them today. The other one, if you're interested, is back in Revelation 13. The beast, or beasts, are a description of the false political and religious ideologies that would lead us away from Jesus and not towards him, which we can find a plethora and don't even have to try that hard to figure it out. The dragon, the beasts, and then finally, the prostitute today. 
which is the idolatrous pleasures of the world when they are sought as an end to themselves, to satisfy something that only Jesus can really satisfy. Now, here's the wackiness of this image that we find today. Revelation 17 takes this image of the beast with horns and crowns and all of this crazy stuff and says, now there is this prostitute who is riding on top of this beast. What do we do with this image? Uh, ultimately, this is describing that those, those political ideologies and religious ideologies of the day the only thing you will find on them, the only thing they will actually usher in, when what we hope that every political power, that every world religion, ultimately their, their desire is that they would bring in ultimate flourishing, and that's why anybody follows them. But what we find that this text is saying is that the only end, if it is not God at the end of those things, is destruction. In John's day, it was Rome. And Rome as a political power, uh, this is the reason why John is on Patmos. This is the reason why he's exiled, because he would not bow the knee and hail Caesar as Lord, because he said, no, no, Jesus is Lord. And not then, because sort of metaphorically he would not bow the knee, nor would he also bow the knee to all of the brutality and all of the sensuality that found its way into everyday Roman life. Secondly, I mean, and that could be just as found if in John's day that was Rome, in our day that could just as much be our country or any other to the degree that it has walked away and called ultimate allegiance and flourishing is found by following the state and not the state as under God. And this is not to say that all politics is bad. Politics, the political authorities and rulers and kings are a gift. Romans 13 uh, verse 1 says that let every person be subject to the ruling authorities for there's no authority except from God and those who have been instituted by God. So politics is a gift of God to bring order to an unruly world when it is being used in that way and not as a tool or a pawn to gather power for oneself. It's meant to be the servant of God, not God's replacement. And so this is kind of a secondary topic. We're not going to spend any more time talking about that. Uh, if you want to talk more, don't talk to me. Uh, but the, the, here's maybe a warning from this passage as it regards uh, politics. Don't put too much stock in them, but don't put too little. But it can be, just recognize that it can be an easy substitute Political powers aligning ourselves with certain political ideologies can very easily become a substitute for God because it feeds some of that power that we desire to align ourselves with, but ultimately can only find in him. Okay, that's all we're going to talk about in regards to that. Secondly, verse 10 and 11 describes this prostitute. It says, John says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you marvel? Which is a wonderful question to ask ourselves too. Now, uh, I think first, a note on, uh, on the prostitute as an image. 
prostitution, meaning the, the selling of one's body for money, at the time that this was written, was a condoned act. It was a, a condoned way to make money. It was legal, and it was even religiously used in temple worship, like in the temple worship as we just talked about with hailing Caesar as Lord. Most of these prostitutes were female in the day. So just to pull ourselves out uh, to be reminded of what this image is saying and what this image is not saying. This image is not in some way saying that this is a sin over and above other sins. Uh, it is more so and is not uniquely blaming women for the sins of men in any other kinds of ways that we may construe. But it is only to say this is a godless practice in that day and in our day. And it is being pulled in that context and used as an illustration to say, do you see how broken our world is? And do you see how much every one of us ultimately need Jesus? So John, John sees this woman and his jaw hits the floor. And then the angel like kicks him for a minute. He's like, hey, why are you staring at her? There's something way more glorious that you should be staring at. Now, every one of us knows this. And can find this in all sorts of illustrations in our own life. We don't even necessarily need this image to find this out. Like, I was at the Cool Springs Mall last week. And I was walking by store after store after store that was calling me. That was enamoring me. Like, I wanted that new iPhone 15 in titanium that you could find at the Apple store. I wanted the double doozy with the cookie and then the whipped cream and then the other cookie from the great American cookie company. That would make me happy. I wanted everything from the North Face store. Uh, again, God made amazing things because he's amazing, but nothing else can hold the weight of glory that only he can. And when we try to put it somewhere else, it will only buckle under the pressure. That's the image that's being driven home here. Because if you find, if you go almost to the end of our passage, Revelation, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 16 says this, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Talking about those two things that at one time were working in tandem, sort of the cultural, worldly powers that be, ultimately described now, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her with fire. What is that saying? Evil ultimately self-implodes. When anything other than God tries to hold the weight that only God can hold, it will only result in death. And so the political candidate who promises uh, power and security ultimately will not deliver the new car that the minute you drive it off the lot devalues 10k and then you park at the Kroger to get the ice cream and then the guy parks next to you even though you park way in the back and scratches your car the sexual experience that you're longing for ultimately when you find it leaves you satis uh, unsatisfied and more ashamed than before where do you find yourself even right now searching for power and pleasure apart from God all of the images in all of the numbers and all the is-nots and all the craziness that's happening here, this is what is being spoken. 
where else are you looking? Where else has your jaw hit the floor? Where else might an angel stand next to you and be like, hey, don't look there. There's something so much better. Just beyond that, just beyond that image, there is another image. But even in the text, it it speaks to what we feel. Because the images of this world are so ubiquitous. We see them everywhere, and they all beckon us. And yet there's this little bitty image of Jesus right in the middle. Because it is so difficult in the noise of this world sometimes to see what is true. But this little bitty image of Jesus right in the middle of the passage is the whole point of the passage. Ultimately, worldliness is imprisonment. Godliness is freedom. When Chip was arrested, in order to keep the money flowing, what had happened in all of his desire to have and to look like he had everything together Uh, He had bribed a French doctor who he was also in that same profession with wine, money, and travel in exchange for confidential information about a new clinical drug that was about to come out on the market that could really help his investment if he knew it was about to hit big. And it did. And he made a bunch of money. And then he got found out. So trial happens. Uh, or I'm sorry, he he initially gets found out, investigation is happening, he's facing up to 30 years in prison. And he has this sort of crossroads moment. And God woke him up. God woke him up to the reality of what he had been chasing. God woke him up to the ugliness of what he was actually chasing and began to connect what he actually needed instead. And one of the images that he found was in Matthew 16 as he was deciding, how should I plead? Like, what should I do? Should I get the good criminal defense guy and should I just hide behind him and say, no, no, it wasn't really that bad. I didn't really do that. Or should I just be straight up and be like, yeah, I did. And he found the words in Matthew 16 to be guiding, which says, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so he decided to lose his life. And he pleaded guilty, and because of that, uh, he actually found favor in the eyes of the judge and only got five years in prison, and it was in prison that he actually found true life. Verse 14 says, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen, and faithful. Here's the image. To be a Christian is to be at war. But the way we may normally think about that is to, yeah, we're going to be at war with all those bad guys out there. When instead what this passage is calling us to is a war within ourselves. The way that Paul describes this war with himself in Romans 7, he says, I, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. That is the image that is being described here. And so for, for those of you Christians in the room who are finding in your weekly life a struggle, 
who are finding in your weekly life temptations that feel like they could overcome you at any moment, who are unsatisfied in their walk with Jesus, who are unsatisfied in their prayer life, who are unsatisfied in their daily Bible reading or lack thereof, who are unsatisfied in their relationships and some of the things this this guy up here may say are true and yet you don't feel them in your life. Welcome to the club. Like, that is the Christian life. The dissonance between your flesh and the spirit is the Christian life, and that is what is being described here, and that is what is being welcomed to say, yes, that is true of us. To be awake to Jesus is to be awake to the struggle inside of you and to be awake to the struggle out here. But it's a little bit easier to keep the struggle out here at arm's length. It's harder to do that when we have to look at ourselves. Here's the good news that is buried in the middle of this passage. Because the question is, how do we overcome when we find ourselves locked in that struggle? Uh, When we find ourselves unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and confused on a daily basis, wandering, hearing all of these promises that we think should be true, and yet not being able to fully taste them. What are we supposed to do with that? Verse 14 says, look at the Lamb. Look at the Lamb. He is the one who conquers. Because when I look at myself, I see all the reasons that I shouldn't be able to stand before God. I see all the reasons that I still find myself unfulfilled. I find in myself only all of the longings and lack. Only in him can I actually find something that truly satisfied, even when I don't really believe it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul asks the question. And then almost without a breath, in the very next sentence says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He got this passage. He understood Revelation 17. Because the only thing that will ultimately conquer all of the tension inside of me and all of the tension that I find with this world not being the way that I want it to is an assurance that there is something true that does not depend on me. Because if I have to depend on myself for an assurance of that when I stand before God, he will smile and say, welcome in, then I am on shaky this passage says there are three things that are true of the believer. And there are three things available to any who will bow the knee to King Jesus. And they are these three things. It says those that are with him are three things. They are called and they are chosen and they are faithful. Chosen, meaning they are chosen before the foundation of the world written into the Lamb's book of life before they have done anything good or bad. They are called, meaning they have been called effectually. The Spirit of God has come from his mouth into their hearts and has woken them up to this tension inside of themselves to say, there is something wrong with me. I do need something outside of myself to save me and finding Jesus as that Savior. And finally, faithful. Because we have a Savior, who has experienced the onslaught of this world, who has experienced the weight of, of the, the weight of worldliness, the weight of difficulty, the weight of temptation, 
in every way that you and I have been tempted, so has Jesus. Yet he, every single time, yet without sin. Whereas many of our times, we find ourselves falling off on the other side. And so to be called faithful is to find an assurance of your faith that does not depend on you, but depends on Jesus' faithfulness for you. On the cross, taking your shame, taking your nakedness, taking your guilt, and all of the things that should keep you from Jesus, and instead exchanging his righteousness for yours. We talked about words like not guilty and dearly loved last week. This is the description of what it looks like to live into those words, to walk with courage into even an exploration of your own heart and say whatever you find in there does not change what God thinks about you because what God thinks about you is based on what Jesus has done and not what you have done if you have bowed the knee to him in faith. That's the image. And so the call then is to either wake up or to stay awake. Christian, this is a call to stay awake, to be consistently reminded that the only, as you experience that tension, as you experience sort of the numbness in the times between the Sundays, or in the times between your really sweet prayer times, or in the times when you are most disappointed about yourself, to remember in those, your worst moments, the assurance that you have of your faith that is based on Jesus and not you. And for the non-Christian, this is a call this morning. If you're not even sure what you believe, this is a call to ask, would you ask God, help me see this? The only way that we will see this is by his spirit's power. The only way we will see this wrongness and this goodness that both exist inside of us because of the work of God in Christ. And the only way we'll, we will see the wrongness and the goodness of this world that he has made and how it will be made right in him is going to be through his spirit's power. We need it every Sunday and we need it every day of the week. And every time you have a taste of that reality, it's because the spirit is working. Wake up, stay awake. When Chip is in prison, he meets this guy named uh, Kareem Burke, which if you're a 90s kid like me, he co-founded Rockefeller Records with Jay-Z in the 90s. What a power duo. Uh, and he became a Christian in prison similar to Chip. Both of these guys start meeting together, uh, confessing their sins to one another talking about the gospel together, reading their Bible together, praying, and it starts to just gather other guys into their cell uh, to the point where it almost overflows the chapel that existed in this prison. Even though he was a social outcast and none of his friends who had once, he had once thought were his friends in Greenwich, nobody came to visit him, but he now finally had found his life. He had found life in vulnerability. He had found life in community. He had found life in Jesus. And then five years later, if you remember the title, he gets released. And then he has to go back and live in Greenwich. And he gets wooed back into some of those patterns. And he starts to have to say, I can't go to the charity galas anymore. It, it just, it 
does something to my ego that inflates it and sort of draws me back into that old life. I don't want that old life anymore. This is the image of what you're doing right now and what we are doing right now. We're sort of coming to prison, as it were. Isn't that a great image for church? We're coming to the place that maybe most Sundays you wake up and go, I don't really want to go there today. There's a lot of things I could find that I think would fulfill me a lot more than going and being with those people and listening to that guy with lots of hair. But the, the goodness of putting ourselves in those places time after time after time, showing up to small group time after time after time, leaving unfulfilled from small group maybe time after time after time, consistency and showing up and waiting for the spirit to work, that is the life of the believer. And every once in a while, sometimes the light surprises. Sometimes there is a, a unique spark or moment or joy that you experience in Jesus. And so the question is, are we pursuing that? Are we cultivating that? Uh, are we struggling with ourselves in that? So Jesus, we pray that that would be true. Uh, that we, you would wake us up to who you are. You would wake us up to the reality and the goodness and the radical grace that can be ours in Jesus. And we would taste the freedom of godliness, whatever it requires of us. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, my name is Garrett Daniel. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, actually, I didn't know how well this was going to fit into Jeremy's sermon, so it's, it's pretty cool. As I was practicing what I was going to say last night with my wife, she, she said, I was going to start with a joke. I thought that's what you do when you, when you come up here. And she so kindly said, leave out the joke. Um, so I'm not going to start with, with a joke. But I have a unique experience with what I do for work, um, to work with families all across the financial spectrum. Maybe not to chips level, what Jeremy was talking about, but from those that have more money than you can imagine to those that are in very different situations. And they're all asking the same questions, and they all have two things in common. No matter what the numbers say, I have found they have two things that most of the time they always share, including myself. And the first one is they have the same fear. Just as he described Chip, it's this fear of, Am I enough? Do I have enough? Will this money, these possessions, will, that, will these bigger barns give me the significant satisfaction and security that I'm, I'm searching for? And the, again, the numbers could be, couldn't be further, further apart, but they share the same fear because it's pointing to it's not meant to give us that. And so why I'm up here, um, you may have seen in the past Midtown's put up a slide about giving about where we are as a whole, where we are as a congregation. And we want to start being a little more intentional with just, those, those slides are important, showing the numbers and where we are, they're important. But I think we really need to go back to the gospel and back to scripture. And, and let's talk about generosity and giving in this before we can really understand it well in Midtown and, and what our role is in giving. And so what we're kind of working on, and instead of giving these giving updates, we're going to have these teaching moments to go back to God's word. And let's, let's look at what generosity is, what it's not. 
And so we're going to do this. Uh, I don't know, really know the frequency, but we're going to hit on the next couple of sessions uh, these three main points. And um, because ultimately generosity teaches us to trust God, and, and that's what we're here to do. And before I get to the points, you know, we're not going to get up here, Jimmy's not going to get up here and start preaching about giving. I don't think that's what we're called to do. He's going to preach, keep preaching the gospel. And giving is nothing but an outward expression of that inward transformation. And so we're going to keep preaching the gospel, but from, from Genesis to Revelation, giving and generosity is, is there. And so the three things that we're going to hit on over these next sessions are going to be that God is the owner. Right? Psalm 50 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the, he has the world and everything in it. So what does that change in our perspective if all of a sudden everything I own is actually not mine? Uh, God is the owner. Second one is, notes. we are his stewards. What is a steward and how is that different from giving? Um, so we're going to spend time diving into that we are his stewards. And the third one is going to be the owner's agenda is the only agenda. And so is it, is it me pushing my will of what I want to do with this, my time, my talent, my, my dollars, or is it, is it this is the Lord's, Lord, what would you have me do with this? And so we're going to hit on God is the owner, we are his stewards, and the owner's agenda is the only agenda over these next sessions leading into next year. And, and tie those along with the giving updates, right? I think we all, we all want to know where the church is and what the Lord is doing and, and where we're going. And so... We're going to take it a step back and just spend some time to teach about generosity through the gospel. So I mentioned there's two things those families have in common, ones like Chip and, and everyone in between. Well, the second thing is not only, and then the first one was just fear, the second one is they have the same freedom, which is what part of what Chip found in prison. And ultimately, it's that gospel transformation, but... The freedom in regards to this is there's a freedom in holding on tight to what we have, thinking it can get us that security, significance, and satisfaction, to saying, okay, Lord, what, what is this for? That same freedom and generosity can break what our time, again, because giving does not have to do with just money, but all of a sudden it is, Lord, what would you have me do? How would you have me serve? What is this dollar for? And so that's our hope. Our hope is to, I mean, and if you have questions about, you know, where does tithing fit into all this? What does the Old Testament say, the New Testament? Like me, the elders, any of the other pastors, like we would love to talk about that. But the point is giving is not some, something we should feel guilty about. Like I know I need to do it. I'm not doing enough. There's a cycle. I give. Why do I still feel bleh? But it is seeing how it is in the gospel and then allowing that freedom to just come out as an expression of giving. And so that's our goal. That's what I'm hoping I can stumble through this and walk with y'all. And so as we start seeing those giving slides in the coming months and quarters into next year, we're going to take some time um, to teach more. So I realize I'm keeping y'all between you and food. Um, but I think that's it. Garrett, thanks. Yeah, I think the goal of what every part of what we do as believers is ultimately to go back to how are we being transformed by the good news of Jesus? 
that's why we do anything. That's why we show up in this building every week. That's why uh, we serve in all of the ways that we serve as we walk out into our lives and into what God calls us into every moment of every day. And so God wants the first word as you walk in, and he wants the last word to hear that as what you walk out hearing that is ringing in your ears is truth. Because inevitably, you will walk back out those doors, and whether you find it inside or whether you find it outside, you will find lies abounding. And so listen to this truth being spoken to you as we've read almost every one of these weeks coming out of Revelation 11 and receive your benediction. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's sing.